Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and did not necessarily represent those of AMC Networks and its employees. Hello, this is a prepaid debit call from Jens Zöring, an inmate at Virginia Department of Corrections. Buckingham Correctional. To accept this call, press zero to refuse. This call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. Thank you for using GTL. And we're back. And we're back. Sound quality okay? Yes, perfect. Okay. So I was saying, my news friend and supporter is um, John Grisham. Mm-hmm. And... Um, he told me that um, the, the main reason why sort of the media world is interested in this case is not me at all. Mm. It's Elizabeth Hayes. Mm. She's Sharon Stone and Basic Instinct, you know, and everybody likes that. And she brought me around her finger, you know. So that's that's it. That's you have to respect that. That's that's an enormous talent for manipulation. Um, wow. You know, she is, she is, as psychopaths go, she's about the best there is. I know how to pick. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't mess around with any second-rate psychopath. I got the best psychopath out there. Welcome to The Truth About True Crime. I'm Amanda Knox. This season, I'm looking at a case that has chilling echoes of my own. A brutal knife killing in a small town the young lovers as suspects, the media spectacle, the flawed forensics, and the damning testimony of an unreliable witness. The double homicide of Derek and Nancy Hasem in 1985 is well chronicled in the Sundance Now docuseries, Killing for Love. I'm looking at a related but separate crime, the ongoing 33-year wrongful imprisonment of Jens Suring by the state of Virginia. Jens is partly to blame, for he intentionally misled the police when he falsely confessed. And last episode, I looked at how the investigators, prosecutor, judge, media, and jury in Bedford County were responsible for putting an innocent man behind bars. This episode, I'm looking at the most mysterious and personal of suspects in the crime of Jens Suring's wrongful imprisonment his former lover, Elizabeth Hasem. 
We've already heard about Jens's lies. With Elizabeth, as investigator Chip Harding says, Almost everything that comes out of Elizabeth's mouth, us, the investigators, can either prove she is lying or there's highly suspect that she's lying. So we have two unreliable narrators, and they both claim the very same alibi. We know that on the night of the murders, one of them was in Washington, D.C., attending the cinema, ordering room service at a hotel, while the other was putting 429 extra miles on their rental car. Bedford County had a choice about who to believe. And from the start, they chose Elizabeth, who pled guilty to accessory to murder and testified against Jens. Prosecutor Updike relied on Elizabeth's testimony to convict Jens, even while painting her as Lady Macbeth. And it wasn't just the prosecution. It was the media, Jens, even Elizabeth's own family. Enchantress, manipulator, psychopath. I'm highly skeptical of those labels, so often directed at women, which flatten three-dimensional humans into stereotype and myth. I reached out to Elizabeth and told her just that. She wrote me back, but declined to take part in this podcast, just as she declined to take part in the docuseries Killing for Love. Compared to Jens, Elizabeth has been extraordinarily quiet about the case over the last 33 years. And as a result, of almost everyone involved in this case, Elizabeth presents the most question marks. She's a black box, and without being able to see into her head, will have to do the next best thing. Look around her from every angle, starting with the perspective of the crime scene. We know the type O blood, which the prosecutor attributed to Jens, later proved through DNA testing to exclude Jens while identifying two unknown males. That's enough to know that Bedford County's version of events, that Jens is the sole killer, is wrong. But what evidence is there to support Jens's story, that he stayed behind in D.C. while Elizabeth drove back to Lynchburg and murdered her parents? Here's Detective Chuck Reed, one of the original investigators back in 1985. There is Merritt's cigarette butts found at the front back door. Jens didn't smoke. Elizabeth smoked, and she smoked Merritt's cigarettes. Mm -hmm. There was a spot of B-type blood found on a dish rag in the kitchen next to Ms. Hasem. Well... Only 10% of the total population in the country has B-type blood. Well, guess who's got B-type blood? Elizabeth. Hmm. Unfortunately, the sample of B-type blood was too small and degraded to test for DNA 27 years later. So we don't know for sure if it belongs to Elizabeth or not. Chuck Reed also pointed out to me that the bloody sock print that was used against Jens was originally identified as being closer in size to Elizabeth's foot. There are also fingerprints. What we do know is that there is some forensic evidence putting Elizabeth at the scene. For instance, her fingerprints were found there. Jens's were not. That was journalist Bill Sizemore, who pointed out the same thing as investigator Richard Hudson. But she lived in that house. Just because Elizabeth's fingerprints were in the house or because Elizabeth's blood's in the house really doesn't mean anything. 
because she lived there, and she could have left that at any time. He's right. But that doesn't stop prosecutors from using such evidence in court. In my own case, the presence of my DNA in my own bathroom was used against me, as if that proved anything other than that I lived in the house. Perhaps the most telling physical evidence from the crime scene was what Derek and Nancy left behind. With no sign of a break-in, nothing stolen, Nancy wearing nothing but a dressing gown, and the dining room table set for three, it seemed the Hasems were attacked by someone they knew and trusted, like their daughter. Then there's those 429 extra miles on the odometer of the car rented in Elizabeth's name. There's her inaccurate recollection of the movie times in D.C., the fact that the hotel room service was paid for with Jens's father's credit card. And of course, there's the whole fleeing to Europe thing. As Detective Ricky Gardner said in a later interview, an innocent person doesn't run. He was talking about Jens, but Elizabeth fled the country too. That stuff, yeah, you start at circumstantial evidence, but you just start thinking about all that and just letting it add up. But the thing of it is, um, circumstantial evidence can be just as strong as direct evidence if you have enough of it. Hmm. But um, that's basically it with her. None of this is definitive. No one, to this day, can say they caught Elizabeth Hasem red-handed. No one can put a knife in her hands, and I'm the last person in the world to try. What I can say with confidence is that if Jens hadn't been prosecuted as her co-defendant, had Elizabeth faced the murder charges alone, she likely would have been convicted on the strength of all the circumstantial evidence against her, and maybe even executed decades ago. As Chip Harding says, If I was a betting man going to a, a racetrack between the two of them, I'd be heavy betting that Elizabeth was the one that participated in her parents' murders, not Jens Herring. But Jens confessed. Well, funny you should mention that, because so did Elizabeth, back when she and Jens were first questioned in England. She said, I did it myself. I got off on it. Hmm. And if you look at those crime scene photos, you know, whoever did this did get off on it. She oh. was telling the truth for about 30 seconds, you know, she was mm -hmm. telling the truth. And then she immediately took it back, of course. Mm -hmm. But that's on audio tape. She said, I did it myself. I got off on it. And then the cops said, you can't be serious. And she said, okay, I was only being facetious. Mm -hmm. Really, my boyfriend did it. I think she's a pathological liar and she's a manipulator. Detective Chuck Reed isn't the only one who thinks so. Flip-flopping and obliqueness are defining characteristics of Elizabeth's testimony over the years. Here's journalist Sandy Hausman. I don't have a positive impression of Elizabeth. I think mental health professionals have questioned her veracity. Her own relatives have said that she had a propensity to lie. And of course, she and Jens had a little phrase that referred to this uh, tendency she had to deceive. They called it POTs, perversions of the truth. In his book, A Far, Far Better Thing, Jens says Elizabeth's POTs extended to all sorts of things, big and small. She told him her father was the son of an English baron, 
that Lady Astor was her godmother, that she turned down a scholarship to Cambridge in order to attend UVA, that she was orally raped by three men while attending boarding school in Switzerland. The first three of those claims are known to be false. And regarding Elizabeth's claim of rape, her own brother testified at her sentencing hearing that it was a lie. Being a liar doesn't make Elizabeth a killer, though. It just raises questions about how to interpret her testimony, both in her own defense and in her accusations against Jens. She's inconsistent, and some would say she's inconsistent like a fox. That when she lies, she does so with forethought and purpose. At her own sentencing hearing, after she pled guilty to accessory to murder, she claimed that she had not actually desired her parents' deaths or known about Jens's intentions to kill them. I'm quoting her testimony verbatim here. I wanted my parents out of my life. I had this immature, ridiculous fantasy about them being dead, but not murdered. It was in my head, and Jens made it a reality. She went on to say, I never thought that Jens would murder my parents. I still can hardly believe it. I wasn't thinking murder, and it seems that he was. Her testimony had the effect of minimizing her responsibility for the murders. But at Jens's trial, she seemingly had a different goal, to paint Jens as guilty, and her testimony changed accordingly. She now claimed she knew Jens was going to confront her parents, and if necessary, kill them. Quote, I was much more concerned that he would not kill them. This contradiction means that she was either lying in 1987 or lying in 1990 about her foreknowledge of the murders. She remained consistent only on the point of Jens's guilt, that he killed her parents, alone. But the blood of two unknown males shows this story to be a lie as well. And these lies had huge consequences. I understand, of course, that the primary victims in this case are Derek and Nancy Hazen. But that's not the only life that Elizabeth took. Um, she had an opportunity to tell the truth at my trial in 1990 because she had already been sentenced and they could not bring further charges against her um, because of double jeopardy. She was safe. So she could have gotten up on the stand at mm. my trial and told the truth. Mm. And she didn't. She lied. And that's cost me, since my trial, um, 28 years, coming up on 29 years since my trial. And nobody, you know, th th there's, there's no way to hold her accountable for that. Mm -hmm. And But I think it's important to recognize that she took a third life, and that was mine. Elizabeth has remained mostly silent about the case since she and Jens were locked away, with a few notable exceptions. In 2011, when Jens was up for parole, she wrote a letter to the Associated Press, putting forth a message that was loud and clear. Quote, 
If he were innocent, if he were in any way not guilty, I would shout it from the rooftops. The bottom line, however, is that we are equally responsible for the murder of my parents, and we both deserve incarceration. And the next time Jens was up for parole... In a newspaper interview in 2016, she actually admitted that she lied at her own trial and at my trial in court on the stand, and that's perjury. So this is not me making an allegation. She's admitted this. This was in the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Elizabeth admitted that she had lied on the stand about the motive for the murders, but she stood firm on the by then hotly debated issue of Jens's guilt. Quote, I feel like there's this juggernaut of propaganda and things are getting further away from the truth. He was there because he was angry and because of me. Her public outcries had the predictable impact. Jens was denied parole again and again. And then Governor Terry McAuliffe punted the Jens-Suring problem to his successor, the current governor, Ralph Northam. What does Elizabeth mean that things are getting further away from the truth? Why does she seem fixated on keeping Jens tethered to these murders, even as the evidence against him falls away? I don't know. I honestly don't know. And I think I don't know doesn't get enough credit as a reasonable answer to such a difficult question. But I don't know is also unsatisfying to many, if not most people. And so we come up with our own answers. We try to pin Elizabeth down. She's a pathological liar. She was a heavy drug user. The sexuality. As Sacatasco, she's about the best there is. Yens met the devil. It's like, my God, this girl's nuts. Pathological, psycho, sex-crazed, drug-addled, nuts. I hear these words, and alarm bells go off. I know how easily these labels are heaped on, how sticky they are, and how absolutely wrong they can be. I asked Jens about these labels, because he applies them to Elizabeth, too. There's this portrayal of Elizabeth as this, like, femme fatale who, uh, you know, you say, like, or at least you in the book you said, used voice magic on you, and that kind of made me inwardly cringe. And, like, and people portrayed you as her, like, male puppet slave who would do anything she said. And I wonder if you could, like... Just tell me a little bit about that, because, like, weirdly, in my own case, basically, I was the Elizabeth of your case. And I wonder if you have any further thoughts on that. Yeah, the difference between you and Elizabeth is that you're not actually Elizabeth, and Elizabeth actually is is Elizabeth, okay? (laughs) If that makes any kind of sense. Okay. You're portrayed as this murderous Svengali, and you weren't. Mm -hmm. And the highest court of Italy didn't just overturn your conviction. They gave you an actual declaration of innocence. So nobody needs to have any doubt at all. It's not just a question of doubt in your case. You're fully vindicated and declared innocent. And um, that's, you know, 
the exact opposite from Elizabeth, mm-hmm. who, you know, does have an enormous talent for manipulating people. Mm-hmm. There's no question. And um, I think, you know, everybody acknowledges that. It's true. The prosecutor, the media, and almost everyone I spoke to portrays Elizabeth this way. Even Martin Sheen. Well, <laughs> clearly a, a very disturbed young lady. She was living a very false existence. She couldn't bear having to think of herself as remotely involved with this killing. So now she believes everything she's saying, and she has to believe it in the, the corner that she's painted, because otherwise uh, uh, she would have to, you know, go completely mad uh, with what she's done. I mean, she could have saved Jen's life like he was trying to save hers in mm. a, a way that is so profoundly tragic. Uh, and she could have saved herself, at least spiritually, if she had been able to, to, to come to grips and accept um, the possibility of leading an honest life after the fact. It makes me uncomfortable when people assume to know what Elizabeth is thinking and feeling. Jens does it too. I know now that Elizabeth never loved me. And I don't know whether she's capable of love because of her mental condition. She's been diagnosed with a particularly severe case of borderline personality disorder. And I've read a lot about that. And most most experts think that people with borderline personality disorder really aren't capable of love because that's it's, a, it's an attachment disorder. They're not able to form real attachments with other people. That's the issue, that's the problem. So this is the result of a drug addiction, a deeply disturbed young lady with a very uh, unorthodox relationship with her parents, particularly her mother. And uh, she never came to grips with that. And uh, she's never come to grips with who she really is. So that's, it's a double tragedy. Uh, you know, there, there are four lives totally destroyed. Well, not totally, because uh, Jen's is uh, very much uh, alive and, and, uh, and growing still in his humanity. But she could not accept her uh, inhumanity. It's hard to say that Martin Sheen, Jens, and investigators Chip Harding, Richard Hudson, and Chuck Reed are all wrong when they diagnose Elizabeth. But the fact is, we can't actually see into her head. It might very well be true that Elizabeth can't accept the inhumanity of what she did, but we don't know that. We don't even know exactly what she did. And if we're going to speculate, it's only fair to do it in both directions, to give Elizabeth the benefit of the doubt, or at the very least, acknowledge her humanity before judging her. So who is Elizabeth Haysom? Not the femme fatale, not the world's greatest psychopath, but the real person. Like Jens, over the years, Elizabeth has maintained a clean and respectable record. 
She was certified by the American Drafting Design Association, then turned around and taught the course in prison. When she was transferred to Fluvana Correctional, she continued teaching and learned to train rescue dogs. In 2007, she was certified as a Braille transcriber and started brailing books. She got her bachelor's degree through an Ohio University distance learning program. For years, she wrote a regular column about prison life for the local Fluvana Review and published further essays on Tumblr. In 2014, she won PEN America's prison writing competition with a poem called An Ordinary Prison. The final lines read, An ordinary household of hungry, bleeding women hunched over scores and crumbs, burning their hair straight, burning their lives down, burning their popcorn in a microwave, just like ordinary people on the subway. Elizabeth's supporters say the same things about her that Jens's say about him. She is a very, very smart person. She has a lot to offer society. I don't see the point of keeping her in prison. She's even resumed contact with two of her half-brothers, one of whom, apparently, has forgiven her. And Prosecutor Jim Updike, true to his word, showed up for her first parole hearing in 1995. Afterwards, he said, she's a fascinating person to talk to, very charming. Knowing her intellectual ability, you have to wonder what happened, why her parents are dead. That's something I could never understand. Is it possible that every positive characteristic Elizabeth has exhibited during her incarceration, every thoughtful essay, every empathetic gesture, every enduring relationship, is a lie too? Just a part of her psychotic charm, as Jens and others claim? I'm not so sure. One thing's certain. No one's ever accused Elizabeth of being dumb. She excelled in her studies, especially at reading, writing, and theater, while growing up in elite British boarding schools. It wasn't until her final year, when she botched her interview for Trinity College, blew off her final exams, and ran away with a lesbian classmate to travel through Europe, high on drugs, that she became more than just the girl who showed so much potential. Her parents had to call Interpol to help locate their wayward daughter. And when she returned, she admitted to them that she'd been using heroin. To put it mildly, Derek and Nancy were concerned. They're concerned about her admitted drug use, heroin and, and LSD and marijuana and drinking. So and they don't want her to go to the University of Virginia right away. They enroll her in a in a uh, small business school in Lynchburg, Virginia, not far from their home, to keep an eye on her for the for a year. And then they enroll her. She gets accepted and enrolled in the University of Virginia. And, you know, she's a drop-dead gorgeous girl, and she's now attending the University of Virginia as a freshman. By the time Elizabeth started as a freshman at UVA in 1984, she stood out on many levels. At 20, she was a few years older than most of her classmates. She cut her hair short and dressed shabby chic. She smoked. Yen Suring, by comparison, 
with his dorky haircut and nerd glasses, had never had a girlfriend, much less a bisexual, drug-fueled escapade through Europe. Elizabeth first met Jens at an orientation event, but didn't fall for him until November, when they started spending time alone together at a campus snack bar. She professed to be in love with Jens around December, and that would have been December of 84 when they were going to Christmas break. That was investigator Chip Harding, who poured through all their correspondence in his research. He pointed me to one particular letter. In one of her letters, I wanted to share this with you, Amanda. Mm -hmm. One of the letters that we have that she wrote just within three months of her parents' uh, murders said, I'd always believed that I made men fall in love with me so that I could take out all of the hatred I felt for them by humiliating them. I despised their cheap lust and easy passions, and in the end, I made them hate themselves for loving me and the torture I inflicted. That letter ends, I would make a man humiliate himself to obtain me. Then I would give him the best fuck he's ever likely to get, and then walk out. But how the letter began is more revealing. I hated my love for you for a long time. I hated myself for discovering vulnerability. But as the weeks passed, I began to understand. For all the manipulation Elizabeth admits to here, it was all to say that with Jens, it was different. She wrote, I love you, and it may alter intensity and direction from time to time, but I will always love you with a part of me which no one else will be able to snatch. Jens met Elizabeth's parents after winter break. Derek and Nancy came to Charlottesville to take them out to lunch. A week or so later, the Hasems told relatives about how they were worried that Jens wasn't good enough for their daughter. But if they didn't like Jens, there was an even stronger antipathy towards them from Elizabeth. In one of Elizabeth's letters, she writes, Would it be possible to hypnotize my parents? Do voodoo on them? Will them to death? It seems my concentration on their death is causing them problems. My father nearly drove off a cliff at lunch. He nearly got squashed by a tree when he got home and he keeps falling over. And my mother, drunk, fell into the fire. I think I shall seriously take up black magic. We can either wait till we graduate and then leave them behind, or we can get rid of them soon. It was only a few months later that Elizabeth and Jens rented a car and drove to DC for a romantic weekend that would be anything but. Whether or not Elizabeth wielded the knife that killed her parents, we know she fantasized about their deaths. Detective Chuck Reed. It was a whole lot of circumstantial evidence came out as far as she was concerned. I mean, from friends and plus family members on how much she despised and hated her mom and dad and she wanted them dead. You know, we just continuously heard that even from some um, later on down the road once they were interviewed, some her some students from UVA hmm. would talk about that numerous of times. And one girl said just thousands of times, I said, that's all she talked about, how much she hated and despised her parents, and she wanted them dead. And hmm. We never heard that out of Ian Soaring. 
This wasn't your run-of-the-mill adolescent angst. That level of hatred has to come from somewhere. Investigator Richard Hudson pointed me towards her father. Based on what I think I know about their case, I mean, he didn't have very many friends because he wasn't a very nice person. Oh. Hmm. And, um, you know, he played bridge with those women. But if you talk, you know, if you go down there and, you, and we talked to people and he was, you know, kind of a overbearing and arrogant and, you know, I mean, it, it's just, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. But I, I mean, I, Elizabeth didn't grow up in a place. I mean, I, I, I can't say that. It didn't seem like she grew up in a very nice household. You know what I mean? But the real focal point of Elizabeth's anger seems to have been her mother. As Chuck Reed told me, when she gave that interview with the Richmond Times-Dispatch in 2016, she admitted to lying about the real motive for the murders. That Yans really didn't do that because of, uh, he disliked her parents, is because uh, her parents were murdered because of the sexual abuse that she had to deal with and her father didn't do anything about it. Even before that, in a New Yorker interview in 2015, she said, when your mother is your lover, you get confused by affection. This allegation of sexual abuse didn't arise decades after their trials. There was evidence of potential abuse from the moment the investigation began. When the Haysom residence was searched in the aftermath of the murders, investigators found nude photographs of a teenage Elizabeth, taken by her mother, Nancy. Certainly a curious piece of evidence, given Elizabeth's fantasies about her parents' deaths. Was there some kind of sexual or psychological abuse happening? Jens says there was, that Elizabeth told him so, and that that was why she wanted her parents out of her life. But this claim of abuse, these nude photographs, the jury never got to consider them. As Marcus Vetter, co-director of the Sundance Now docuseries Killing for Love, put it, I know that the judge and Updike didn't like the fact that the story is out that her mother may have abused her. Hmm. And they were fighting for this to be suppressed. Hmm. I think that was their goal. Judge Sweeney, who, as you'll recall, was personally connected to the Hasem family, chose to disallow the photographs as evidence. And at both her hearing and Jens's trial, when Elizabeth was asked if she had been sexually abused by her mother, she said no. Just like that, the line of inquiry was dropped. Reporter Sandy Hausman once confronted Detective Ricky Gardner about it. I asked him about um, the allegation that Elizabeth was abused by her mother, sexually oh. abused by her mother. And he said, well, yeah, you know, she said that her mother had fondled her and tried to have a sexual relationship with her, but that didn't have any bearing on this case. Mm. <laughs> I was just like, really? Would it have affected the trial? It's hard to say definitively. The Hasem family was well-respected, and Bedford locals would have been devastated to learn that Nancy abused her daughter. But they also might have been more comfortable thinking of Elizabeth as the murderer. For the record, we don't know whether this allegation is true or not. We know that Jens says Elizabeth told him about it prior to the murders. We know Elizabeth, 
in all her unreliability, denied it in court, and later admitted it in interviews. But we also know that whether it's true or not, Jens believed. I think why he took the blame and why he lied and why they fled and he helped her to flee is because he thought, wow, my girlfriend was abused by her mother. He believed it deeply. Hmm. That's the reason. Because otherwise he would have thought that she's a monster. Hmm. But if she was abused, then she's not a monster, then she's a victim. And what about Elizabeth? Assuming she did participate in her parents' murders, how do we view her morally if we know she was abused by her mother? It would mean that her actions, at least in regards to the murders, were not random and psychotic, but deeply personal and provoked. It would mean that if she was ever a danger to anyone, it was only to her parents. These are all useful, worthwhile questions. But again, ultimately, when it comes to Elizabeth, we're speculating. I have to stress that this is all guesswork because Elizabeth hasn't chosen to speak with us. In a Fluvanna Review piece entitled The Right to Remain Silent from 2007, she wrote, Why not just speak up? I do, I do. But frequently I have found that to keep things moving forward and not fossilizing in emotional tar pits, it's best to suck it up, turn the other cheek and bite my lip. I don't have to complain. I don't have to give voice. I don't have to add to the talk. There is power and majesty in silence. And it's a shame we don't value it. After all, with so many exercising their right to speak, who is listening? Elizabeth, if you ever hear this, I'm listening, and I'm still eager to hear you out. Whatever really happened in Lynchburg, Virginia in 1985, I don't think you're a monster. And if it were up to me, I'd parole you right now. Hi, listeners. Amanda Knox here, host of the podcast The Truth About True Crime. If you're a fan of our show, be sure to check out season two of Sundance Now's original audio drama, Exeter, now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Picking up where season one left off, Detective Colleen Clayton, played by Jean Triplehorn, and her partner Pruitt, played by Ray McKinnon, follow a trail of confessions that lead them back to Exeter's most infamous unsolved crime, the brutal murder of two teenage lovers. Colleen and Pruitt must fight to maintain order as their renewed investigation rips open eight years' worth of old wounds in their small southern town. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Parole, right. Elizabeth pled guilty to accessory before the fact, which she had a plea agreement with the prosecutor. Uh, she was given 45 years on each, and she will be mandatorily released, I think, in about 11, 12 more years. She will be released in her 60s unless they decide to parole her earlier. And it's my understanding she has a very good record uh, in the penitentiary also, and she will go back to Canada um, it's my understanding there are people waiting to help her if she is released to parole and goes back to Canada. There's a place mm -hmm. for her. I don't really view, to be honest with you, either one of them as a threat at this point in time after all these years and, and the way their records have been you know, in the system. 
asked Jason Flom of the Innocence Project the same thing. I mean, everything I've read and everything I've learned about this case certainly makes it seem like she was culpable for this. You know, has she paid her debt to society? You know, that's, it's hard for me to say no. I mean, how much time is enough? Right. She, uh, you know, she's also been in for over 30 years. Um, you know, we're supposedly a, a nation of second chances. So that's that's a hard one for me. I mean, I have you know, I've become so close to Yen. I, I consider him a close personal friend, and you know, I I am you know it's hard for me to be totally objective about her because of the role that she played in his wrongful conviction. But then again, she's a victim of her own circumstances too, because from everything we know, she suffered pretty terrible abuse um, at, at the hands of her parents. And so, you know, I can't walk a mile in her shoes either, but. So there's no there's no winners in this case. Hmm. You know, it's all it's all bad news. I know how long a year in prison is. I've felt that personal cost. Thirty years in prison constitutes so much loss and so much change. It's an unpopular position, I know, but at a certain point, it's just cruel. Enough is enough. All that remains is the truth. Elizabeth owes it to Jens, to her family, and to Lynchburg to identify those two unknown men and clear Jens's name. But we don't need to hear the truth from Elizabeth to do the right thing for Jens. There's an all-too-common difficulty here. Exonerating Jens would leave these murders technically unsolved. There would be no killer of record according to the justice system. For there are common cognitive biases that we all share, and those biases are working against Jens as he faces the bureaucracy of justice. The structure of the system we've built shapes our decisions, steers our actions, and sometimes it leads us to imprison innocent people. One way of looking at the case is is that, you know, um, Elizabeth was this Bengali-type person who somehow manipulated me into committing a terrible crime. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not what happened. Um, it's not what it even felt like at the time, right? Mm-hmm. The lack of control, to me, comes in at a different place. If Virginia had not had the death penalty, if Virginia had only had life imprisonment, then she could not have come to me and said, if you don't help me, they're going to kill me, Mm. right? All she could have said to me is, if you don't help me, they're going to put me in jail. Mm -hmm. And if she had come to me and said that, I would not have said to her, all right, let me take a rap for you. I would have said to her, okay, honey, I'll visit you every weekend, right? Next time on The Truth About True Crime, we'll be looking at our final suspect in the crime of Jens's wrongful imprisonment. Us. In the meantime, be sure to check out the Sundance Now docuseries, Killing for Love, at SundanceNow.com. And please subscribe, rate, review, and share the truth about true crime.